Well, what a good hymn for us to sing, is it not? Just our, our God is the ancient of days. We sang, right? Though the nations rage and kingdoms rise and fall, there's still one king reigning over all. So will I will not fear, for this truth remains that my God is the ancient of days. How easy is that for us to say here, right? And yet, could you imagine yourself being in Ukraine and saying that? That uh, I know that there's one king ruling over all, and I will not fear, for the truth remains. Though the dread of night overwhelms my soul, he is here with me, I am not alone. Oh, his love is sure, and he knows my name, for my God is the Ancient of Days. And, and Jim, I was so encouraged by your testimony, just of the church being the church. And uh, just, you know, would, would we be like that? Are, are, are we at all like that with our neighbors? And I trust that God would give us the grace in that day to be like that, to be helping and, and trusting and, and knowing that God is, is here right with us. And though I, I may not see what the future brings, I will watch and wait for the Savior King. Then my joy complete standing face to face in the presence of the Ancient of Days. Just kind of a different mindset uh, for us and for others. I mean, war is really on our mind. Um, I mean, ever since 11 days ago on February 24th, when uh, Putin, uh, Vladimir Putin, went on Russian television at 6 in the morning and announced that he had made a decision to launch special military operations in eastern Ukraine. Within minutes of that announcement, bombing was heard. Explosions were reported in Kiev and Kharkiv, Odessa and Donbass. And, um, you know, really for the last week and a half, we've seen just the relentless attack of the Russians upon Ukraine from the north and from the east and from the south. We, we've seen the courageous fight of the Ukrainians, though outnumbered yet determined to, to fight with all their might, to, to keep their freedom as desperate as they are. And, and thousands on both sides have died already. And uh, Jim alluded to earlier, just they're bombing civilians now. And so just the casualties are going to be even in a greater way. And, and over a million Ukrainians have fled to neighboring nations. Can you imagine a million people leaving the country and, and heading into like Poland and Hungary and Moldova and Slovakia and Romania, just taking in a million people? It's hard. And only the Lord knows when and how this onslaught will end. And until then, we must pray and must help as the Lord guides in, in any way that we can. He can, but war is on our minds. And you know what? War was on the mind of Jesus as well when he thought about the church. Consider this verse, right? Matthew sixteen eighteen: I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus viewed himself as the attacking army against the fortresses of hell, entering into enemy territory, being resisted by the gates of Satan and his foes, and yet ultimately overcoming victorious. It says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Strong as they may appear, the gates of hell are no match for the kingdom of Christ and for his glory. Despite the numerous squadron of demons, the, the church will be victorious, and in that we can find great comfort. But we will not win this war. The church will not without its fights. And this morning as we turn to the scriptures, we're going to see some of those battles for the gospel. My message this morning is entitled, 
a battle for the gospel. We're going to see just a battle taking place here on several fronts. We're going to, we're going to see the, the, the battle being fought on the demonic front, and a battle being fought on the social front, and a battle being fought on the human front with flesh and blood. My message comes from Acts 16, so if you haven't opened your Bibles yet, I encourage you to do so. If you didn't bring a Bible, I encourage you to take a Bible from the seat in front of you, page number 925, and follow along, because... We're just going to see this battle come straight from the text. We're going to look at verses 16 through 24 this morning. And these verses describe the story of the the slave girl's deliverance in Philippi. Now Philippi, as you remember, was a a stop that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke made during Paul's second missionary journey. And I I just assume that you you know that, but we just need to review. So review this week in, week out. You're just going to have it delved into your mind. They, They started, Paul and Silas did, in Antioch. And they went north through Syria and Cilicia, eventually arriving at these cities where they had gone to on their first missionary journey, Antioch and Lystra and Iconium and Derbe. And along the way, when they're visiting those cities, they picked up Timothy, who joined them for the journey. And these men proceeded west to Phrygia and Galatia, and uh, they tried to go south into Asia, but they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia at that time. And they tried to go north then into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them to go there either. So they went to Troas. And in Troas, two things happened. First of all, they they picked up Luke, the doctor, the author of this book of of Acts, to be their traveling companion. And, And second, Paul received a vision from this man from Macedonia who urged them, saying, come to Macedonia and help us. And so they went further west into Macedonia. They, they traveled across this, the Aegean Sea by night, spending a night in Samothrace, landing at the poor city of uh, Neapolis, and walked 10 miles north to the city of Philippi, a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And, and while in Philippi, Acts 16 records for us three stories about three different people whose lives were changed forever through the gospel of Christ. First of all, Lydia, and a slave girl, and a jailer. Now, these weren't the only ones who were transformed through the power of Christ, but these are the ones that Luke decides to tell us about. And um, you say, well, why, why these individuals? F.F. F. Bruce has a good insight. He says, these individuals are signaled out by Luke among those whose lives were influenced for good by the gospel at Philippi. They differ so much one from another that he might have thought to have selected them deliberately in order to show how the saving power of the name of Jesus was shown in the most diverse types of men and women. And their stories give hope to us all. And, and give hope to all whom we, we speak about, we speak to. Whether it's male or female, whether it's young or old, whether it's cultured or uneducated, whether it's wealthy or poor, the gospel is for all. It's for all who believe and trust in Christ. And we ought never, right, to look past that for ourselves and whoever we may be, right? The gospel is for us if we but believe. And, and whoever we talk with, whoever we mix with, whoever we mingle with, we ought not to ever think, oh, they're, they're beyond the reach of Christ. No, if God can convert Lydia and a slave girl and a Philippian jailer in Philippi, he can convert anybody. Well, last week we looked at Lydia, how God opened her heart to believe in the gospel. This morning we're going to look at the slave girl. And uh, just what God did in, uh, in her life, being delivered from her demon. And next week, we'll look at the conversion of the jailer. The story begins in verse 16. So let's read it now. Acts 16, 16 and following. 
Luke writes this, as we were going to the place of prayer, and again, that's we because Luke has joined them, the author here. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They're advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with many rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stock. I mentioned this before, but this Stella story really tells us of the the battle for the gospel. See, when when Paul and his crew came into Philippi, they weren't welcomed by this big grand reception of, oh yes, pour out the red carpet, come in, apostles of the Most High, right? Tell us of what you have for us, and we will believe and we will follow. It wasn't like that at all. First of all, they came quietly. First, they simply went to this place of prayer down by the river. And, and they met with just a few women, and one of whom was Lydia, and God opened her, her heart, and, and, and um, Lydia opened her home and brought the missionaries then into their home. All that took place without much opposition, but opposition was coming, and it was coming when Paul's message began to hit the pocketbooks of the men in Philippi, and uh, when it began to hit their, their prophet, as they say, all hell broke loose is what took place. As Simon Kistemacher says in his commentary, Wherever the church develops, Satan tries to obstruct the work of God's servants. And that's what we see right here in these verses. We see the, the opposition against Paul and his missionary friends. And, and so Paul fights the first battle in Philippi. And I'm calling it the demonic front. Because just as Russia is invading uh, Ukraine from north and east and the south, so, so likewise, here the battle for the gospel right, is coming from several different fronts. And he faced a fight here. From the demonic realm, not with a girl, but with the demonic world. Uh, again, the girl is introduced to us in verse 16. Read again. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Now, this girl was everything Lydia was not. Lydia was this professional woman on the top of the social scale. This slave girl, however, was on the bottom of the social scale. Lydia was the sort of woman that you would gladly associate with. You would love to be seen in public with her. You'd be glad to have her into your home for dinner as a dinner guest because she would be entertaining and and witty and enjoyable, filled with many adventures as she had traveled and she sells this purple fabrics. But the the girl with uh, the divination slave girl, you might be scared to have her in your home. You might, you might uh, be ashamed to see, be seen with her in community. You, you'd have no idea what she would do to you or to the home. Such was who she was. Verse 16 tells us that she had a spirit of divination. Literally, she had a python spirit. 
It's a reference to Greek mythology. The Python guarded the, the shrine at Delphi where oracles were given. And eventually Apollos, right, the, the Greek deity, was able to gain power over the oracles by killing the Python with a hundred arrows lobbed at the same time right up upon this Python, killing it. So now he became the one who gave oracles. But this Python spirit, this, the spirit of divination was given to her. She was a, a fortune teller who could tell the fortunes of those who came to her. So I want you, like last week we thought about Lydia. What, what comes to your mind when you think about this slave girl? Like what, what, what might she look like? Uh, something like this does come to my mind. Small girl in a dark place. A sad look upon her face. Little hope in this world. Now, many questions about this girl. Like what, what sort of fortunes is she telling with was it a sham? Could she really tell the future? What, what role did the spirit play in her life? Um, what, was, was the spirit really knowing the future or able to change events so as the future would take place as predicted? We, we have no idea. But we know that this girl was good at it because she, verse 16, brought her owners much gain by her fortune telling. However it worked, it worked. This girl, it didn't help her much, Right? But it helped her, her owners who handled her because, see, she was exploited and she was abused. She was uh, a victim of human trafficking, if you will, controlled and enslaved by wicked men who were using her for their own profit. And, and one can hardly paint a more hopeless case of a human being in the clutches of evil men than this little girl. Now, Paul had first encountered this girl on, on his way to the place of prayer. The place of prayer was down by the river, right, where, where Paul met with Lydia and and those other women uh, some days before. And apparently it's a, a frequent place where Paul was visiting. It's a place where people were interested in God were, were, were assembled. And verse 17 tells us what the girl did. As they were going, this girl followed them to the place of prayer. Verse 17, she followed us. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So picture this scene. Paul's the, the newcomer of the city being affirmed by this, this small slave girl who everyone knew had the power of divination and was shouting out about Paul, about these are the, the uh, servants of the Most High. They're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And basically she was saying, she was crying out, she's saying, these are, are people of God, they're followers of God. They bring a message of God for you, telling you how you might be saved. The only thing that was lacking was this girl saying, listen to them. Listen to them. Follow what they say. It's odd, isn't it not? Demonic spirit within her, giving wisdom and insight in some regards to tell the truth about Paul. That Paul was speaking the way of salvation, trust in Jesus and in him alone. Directing others to to their attention to go listen to these people who are proclaiming salvation. It's odd, but it's not so odd. Because demons believe in God. They're probably more orthodox than any of us. Because they know more being in the spiritual realm. They haven't experienced what we have experienced. But they, they know more. And James 2 verse 19 says, They believe in God and they shudder. Because they know they're rebellion against God and their doom which is coming upon them. In fact, during the ministry of Jesus, he encountered similar spirits who spoke the truth. In Mark chapter 1, we read the encounter that Jesus had with a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. This, this man cried out, the spirit, right? 
What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? You've come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Totally proclaiming the truth. And Jesus told this demon, be silent and come out of him. That's similar to what Paul does. Look, Look at verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days. These are servants of the Most High God bringing to you a message of salvation. And verse 18 says this. It says, this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. Again, filled with lots of questions. Why did Jesus, why did Paul rebuke this unclean spirit in this girl? Especially if she's speaking the truth. Especially that Paul had tolerated her for many days is what it said. And I think the key comes in verse 18. It's really simple that Paul was annoyed by this girl. He was greatly annoyed by this girl. She wasn't to help. Maybe her words were coming as like incessant interruption. Like maybe he was trying to get his message across and she was shouting this out. Maybe her volume level was too high. Whatever it was, she was not a help. She wasn't helping the cause of the gospel. She was hurting it. So Paul rebuked the spirit and the spirit then obeyed and came out. And really right here might be the greatest point of application of this point. Listen, just because someone's telling the truth doesn't mean that they're helping the gospel. Just because they're telling the truth doesn't mean that they're helping the gospel. I I picture the preacher who is uh, who's golden-tongued himself, who can ooh and awe the crowds and bring many, many together, and who can, who can preach the gospel well, but he's living a lie at home, verbally abusing his wife and his children, engaged in evil deeds himself. The words may be right, but the life is wrong, and the life actually hurts the gospel. And when the truth comes out, The damage will be proportional to the size of the platform. And what may have appeared good is actually quite evil and wrong and bad. Devastating. Devastating. I follow some people across the United States who've been involved in big churches with gifted preachers and pastors. And then they've seen the, 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 the scars and they've seen the damage that things have done. And they've forsaken Christ. They've forsaken the faith they once professed. Gifted people with right words may not be a help to the gospel. Despite the thousands that come. Because when they fall, thousands fall with them. Or I picture the co-worker who knows enough theology and Bible to speak forth the truth. But his life's total contradiction. Total hypocrite. You know, when the, when the people of the world says, Oh, those Christians, they're all hypocrites, right? They gain a reputation in some place. Right? They, they gain a reputation from the, the proud, arrogant ones who think they know all, all this in the Bible and yet don't know the first thing about walking in humility. I remember having a conversation with a pool buddy of mine. He's telling about this person um, in his life who constantly talks about Jesus, but his life didn't match up. And he, he said this, my buddy said, I know he's religious, but he's a jerk. Do you think that helps? Not sure ultimately that that helps. Some people can be a hindrance to the gospel and not a help. And so I just encourage you, even at this point, just be discerning about people. Just because they're saying the right things doesn't mean even that they're on the side of the gospel. They may be spies infiltrating behind enemy lines, looking to destroy rather than build up. And I encourage you to look at your own life as well. Are you helping the gospel with your words? Are you hurting it? 
so important that we help the cause of the gospel with our, our lives as well. Well, getting back to the account of the book of Acts, we see Paul rebuking this, this demon, this slave girl, and, and it came out of her immediately. This is war on the, the demonic front. And, and I love the power of the name of Jesus. He says, verse 18, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Later, Paul would write to those in, uh, in Philippi, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as he wrote that letter to the Philippians, I'm sure many of them had this imagery in mind, where through the name of Jesus, the demonic world was subjected to him. And they knew the authority of Christ, and they're called to bow down and to worship him. And that's what we see. We see the evil spirit bowing to the name of Jesus, coming right out of the girl. Now, when it comes to us in our, our day and age, we may not face a lot of um, demon-possessed fortune tellers. Any of you guys run across a demon-possessed fortune teller last week? I, I didn't. Just all confession, I, I, I didn't. Right? But it doesn't mean we're not engaged in spiritual warfare. Paul said in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a spiritual battle going on. And maybe it's not quite as overt in our country. It is overt in other countries. It's not as overt in us. So we need to take up the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all this, stand firm. So take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Shod your shoes with the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And when it comes to the spiritual realm, see, we're, we're at war every bit as much as, as uh, the Russian soldiers and Ukrainian people are at war with each other. We really are. To battle for the gospel on the demonic front. Well, we need to move on. Secondly, we see the, the battle for the gospel on the social front. This comes in verses 19 through 21. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought, in the, the mag- brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. It, it, it's interesting here how the, the shift, the focus has shift, shifted, right? It, it shifted away from the girl to these owners. In fact, we don't ever hear any more about the girl again. And so it leads us to think, right, what happened to this girl? Did, did she believe in Jesus or not? Or did she just kind of go her own way, now having been freed of the Spirit? And, and almost all the commentators um, say that we should assume that she became a, a follower of Jesus and that she joined the church in Philippi. It's an assumption. It's a guess. I think it's a good guess. I think it's a good assumption. We, we don't know for sure. But there, there certainly are reasons why Luke didn't mention what happened to this girl and whatever those reasons were, we don't know. But instead, he focused on her owners, her handlers, and they were not happy. Because of Paul, their their checkbooks had taken a hit. No more easy money for them. They were really angered against Paul and his friends. Verse 19 says that when her owners saw their hope of gain was gone, that they're going to lose money in this proposition when when Paul came and cast out that, that demon from this girl... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. 
I mean, essentially, they made a, a citizen's arrest. And, and can you imagine? They, they just came upon these men and they surrounded them. They grabbed them. Right? Maybe they tied something around their hands to get them. They, somehow they, they got them and subdued them. It says they dragged them. So they, they didn't just, Paul and Silas didn't just take them. They, they like really forced them along, right? So you can just imagine them right, kind, of, kind of being dragged along, carried along, brought into the magistrate. Such was a, a, a picture of just their anger and their rage at these men. They brought them to the marketplace. That was a social center of the city where apparently there was this, this place. I mean, it sounds strange to us, right? I mean, we don't, we don't drag people downtown to the court, courtroom, Right? Hey, I've got something against this guy. No, what, what are you? We, we call our lawyer, and we talk to our lawyer, and we say, I've got this thing against this person. Can you write up something? And so the, someone writes up something, and then they submit it to the court, and then some summons, and then the policemen come, and they deliver something, and then they're asked to request to be there at court. And if they're not there at court, then they get in trouble. And we don't, we don't get physically into taking law into our own hands as they did back then, but, but back then it was perfectly legal. One commentator says this, the, the owners of the slave girl were acting in accordance with Russian law when they laid their hands on Paul and Silas and put their grievance before the city authorities. That's what Roman law did. Roman law was. They, they could do that. And they brought up two accusations. Uh, one comes in verse 20 and the other in verse 21. The first is this, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. The second comes in verse 21. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, both of these, they're, they're really just smoke screens, if, if you will, right? They were really upset at their financial loss, and, and, and that's what was driving them. So much so, they're ready to drag Paul and Silas before these magistrates who can do something here. And, and then they give kind of these false excuses. And I say, there's a lesson to be learned here. When someone's upset or angry, there's something going on in their heart. They have some other desire that they want to get around. Right? And they think, and they know, if they simply raise the temperature in the room, they'll get their way. It's often the case. An angry husband rages against wife and children. And they've learned, he's learned, they've learned, that for the sake of peace, if they just bend, peace in the home. And so they just develop these habit patterns like that. The child throwing a temper tantrum has learned as well. That eventually parents always give in. Because they want a desire and they want it really bad. But I say as church family, whenever you see anger or rage, there's something else going on in the heart. And so dig into the heart to try to find out what it is and address the heart problem. Brad Bigney in his great book, Gospel Treason, writes this. When someone's in a rage at home or in public, you can be sure that Someone else has threatened one of his or her idols, and war is about to break out. Anger, irritability, and verbal outbursts are indicative of heart issues gone awry. When you react to someone else, what is it that you're protecting? What is it that you must have? The conflicts you're having can be traced back to your own desires. We see in James 4, 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and conflicts and fights among you all? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And Bigney concludes, right, your desire causes war between you and anyone who gets in the way of your desire. And in the case of these men, Paul and Silas had gotten in the way of their desire. Their desire was money. Their desire was abusing this girl for their own gain. 
And I just say for you, right, whenever you're angry, whenever you're stirred, whenever you're upset, just say, what is it that's in me? What am I wanting so bad that I'm willing to sacrifice to get that? And may you pray the prayer of prayer. Pray, pray the prayer that uh, Brad Bigney recommends. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. God, search me. I, I want to know what it is that's desiring. What, what desire do I have? What, what's my idol? What's, what's my thing I really want? Well, when it comes to Philippi, the, it's the gospel on the social front. These men, these owners of slave girl, wanting, desiring the, the prophets. But it's gone and they're not happy. They're not happy. They didn't get what they want, so they drag Paul and Silas. And they say these two things, right? Verse 20, right? These men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. Well, I think they said that because that would be a way in which they could get the, the Romans on their side. And there was plenty of anti-Semitism back in those days. Views of Jews in Philippi at that time, as I mentioned last week, were in the vast minority. They didn't even have enough to have a synagogue. And um, they were blamed for disturbing the city. Now, at this point, there was certainly more going on in Philippi than, than Luke tells us. We know of Lydia, her whole household. Uh, was converted and, and brought to Christ or baptized last week. We saw this. Um, and perhaps even by this time, there were enough other followers that there was some disturbance in the city. When we get to chapter 17 in the city of Thessalonica, in, in verse 6, we're going to see that they were accused of turning the whole world upside down. Right? So the, like they, they come out, somehow the gospel is getting in there and it is causing somewhat of a, a disturbance. It's probably true, but probably the motive of that is to let's, okay, these are Jewish people, right? We hate Jews and therefore kind of stirring up the animosity with them. So, Second charge in verse 21 says that they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept. And here they're making a jump. They're making a big jump. It's basically say because the gospel transformed the slave girl and she was no longer able to perform her magic, right, because it's not consistent with the gospel, right? These Romans felt that Paul was telling them, commanding them, urging them that they could no longer be involved in their magical arts, that wasn't Paul's message, that we're going to come here and we're going to change all your customs. You can't have their magical arts anymore. The world can do as it wishes. Paul didn't have power over the people of that. The preaching of the gospel is simply a way of bringing up what's going to happen to those who engage themselves in those behavior. And the world hates it. Because they feel condemned. Because they are condemned. So they fight against it. Socially, just like the demons fight against the Lord. And no way Paul wasn't forcing these Romans to, to live as he lived, um, but they felt threatened by his words. It's not too far off from our culture today, by the way. We're fighting a culture war on the, the social front as well. We advocate for the life of the unborn. We're hated by the world. When we proclaim that homosexuality is sin, we're hated by the world as a result. And what's happening today is there's social pressure that's being placed upon us all that, that if we merely say homosexuality is sin, like, like drunkenness and like lying and killing and, and uh, cheating and stealing, we just put it all there. Yes, yes, it's a sin, but there's going to be forgiveness in Jesus. As much as we, we say that, they hear this homosexuality. And they want us not only to tolerate deviant LGBTQ, XYZ, whatever letters are going to come up with next. They want us to tolerate those letters, 
but they, they want us to accept it, and they want us further to approve it. And until we get to the point of approving it, um, they will never be satisfied. And, and that is the, the social front of where the battle for the gospel is today. By social, I, I don't mean uh, the social gospel. I mean just socially, uh, people in our society. There's, a, there's a, a battle for the gospel in our society today. We don't approve of the sins of the world. The, the wrath of the world will come upon us. And I think all you need to do is ask Jack Phillips, right, owner of the Masterpiece Cake Shop in uh, Lakewood, Colorado. He's been fighting the fight on the social front for many years. It was uh, over 10 years ago, right, when, when uh, he said his religious beliefs kept him from making a custom wedding cake for a same-sex couple. And it took six years till he stood before the, his case came before the Supreme Court in 2018. And eventually he was vindicated. The Supreme Court did, praise the Lord. He vindicated that, that he can simply say that this is against my religious convictions. We, indeed, we do have religious freedom and in our country, but less than a year ago, another case was brought in June 2021, and he's been found guilty. A judge found that Masterpiece Cake Shop illegally refused to bake a cake to celebrate a man's trans woman's, celebrate a trans woman's birthday and identity, saying it violated the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act. I'm not even sure whether there's a transition from man to a woman or woman to a man, whatever you want, just to celebrate this day that I've become a woman or a man and and their cake shop basically said, uh, no, we can't do that. They're targeted, obviously. This was contrived so as to bring it into the courts. And I wouldn't be surprised to continue to the Supreme Court again. His case is the public battle, though. Our cases are all the, the small private battles we have in the social sphere. The battle with our friends and our neighbors. Trying to toe this line between accepting others sinful others as made in the image of God and, and loving them as, as God loves even the just and the unjust and, and sharing the gospel with them and, and, and trying to lead them to Christ, right? Accepting them as image bearers, but in no way approving of their behavior because their behavior is wrong and sinful before the Lord. Have you, have you had those battles with anybody at all? Trying to put the line between Right, accepting and embracing people for people's sake, and yet not approving um, of their activities. And I know that that sparks can fly. Ivana faced this as well, just talking theologically about about what I've talked about today. Yes, homosexuals are, are sinners, just like drunkards and murderers. They need Christ. They need to change and be transformed. And both of us vilified. Because of just even trying to share that on the social world. But we need to remember, church family, that, that our citizenship is not in heaven. It's not here on earth, rather. Our citizenship is in heaven. That our ultimate approval, we don't have to fit into society here. Paul would later write <clears throat> to those in Philippi, <clears throat> our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. To be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And, and Paul wrote that to the Philippians, reminding them that the evil men out there, the imposters, he said in verse 19 of chapter 3 of Philippians, um, chapter 18, I, I, I've told you often about the, the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame 
with minds set on earthly things. And these, these uh, slave owners had minds set on earthly things. They were interested in their, their belly. And, and their glory was their shame in, in uh, abusing this little girl for their own profit. We need to realize we're going to wage war on this front, and we need to wage it individually as we know how. It's hard. It's never easy. But it needs to be, be done. All right, the last battle, battle of our text is uh, the physical front. And by this, I just simply mean right, flesh and blood. The physical suffering that came, comes upon those who, who follow after Christ. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And I just point out that Paul and Silas suffered physically greatly for the cause of the gospel. I mean, just imagine with me these words, having your, your shirt ripped off of your body. Because the crowds were there and the magistrate himself ordering this. The judge ordered that, take his shirt off. Your back is exposed. And then some people take rods and they just begin pelting you and pounding you in your back. Not only lacerating your skin, but deeply bruising your muscles. Perhaps causing ligaments to tear. Perhaps breaking bones in your back. Not just a whack or two, but verse 23 speaks about the, the many blows. And then thrown into prison. Not a prison like we think about prison. Where it's nice, warm, air-conditioned, and the only problem is you just can't see outside. Now, this is a dark place. You can't see outside. You can't see because it's pretty dark there. And thrown not only into prison, but in the inner prison, the place reserved for the most dangerous criminals, need to be kept as secure as possible. Finally, we find their, their feet, it says in verse 24, are fastened in the stocks, secured in place so they cannot move. I read one commentator that talked about how they, they would be there and not, not just sitting comfortably so you're sitting in your chair, right? You're lying on, your, on the floor, vermin infested floor with your feet up in the air and spread apart. Like even if you're sitting here right, you, probably, you probably maybe have your legs crossed and then blood stops flowing and you start moving, you move across your other leg and then you sit still like this and then, then you kind of adjust around, right? When your legs are in stocks, you can't do that. So you just think about the pain and suffering that that causes, the uncomfort and the cramping and the pain that comes into the legs after three hours and five hours and ten hours of not moving. And if anything strikes me about these verses, it's the injustice of it all. Paul and Silas came to Philippi with a message of hope. And the message did good. Lydia was granted eternal life. This slave girl was, was released, got out of this human trafficking. She was free. Result, hating, hated and beaten and despised. Not even given a fair trial. Like, like if you look, these were the accusations that came against them in verse 20 and, and 21. And without even a trial, without even a discussion, it was just the mob violence kind of came against them and they were beaten and thrown into prison and they suffered greatly for it. But you know what? Injustice happens in war, doesn't it? I mean, think about those in Ukraine. Think about the suffering that they're experiencing. Many have died. Many 
place has been bombed and they just happen to be the wrong place at the wrong time and they're done. Many have been injured in the bombing. And many millions have been displaced. Just think about being displaced, losing your home, separated from your family, because all the men have to stay. And the women and children can go. You're separated from, from that. Think about walking in the cold and mud for days, not knowing what lies ahead for you or the million other refugees that are around you. Think about the children. None of them signed up for this. You children in this room are very fortunate that God has placed you here in America where you don't have to walk away from your home for miles and days and just sleep in a room someplace, not change your clothes or shower for days on end. These children are bearing the brunt of much of the, the suffering. So if you think about Christian life, if you think about it as a vacation to Disneyland, you think about it wrong because the battle for the gospel is a war. You should think about Christian life as a war. And then you'll be able to endure these things. We're going to see next week that Paul and Silas were in prison. They were singing, right? Because they understood that this was war and they had a wartime mentality and they were expecting it. And I just say this, church family, expect physical sufferings to come because of the gospel. Now, we live in America where that's probably not going to be the case. Have any of you ever met anyone who's been beaten for the gospel? You guys have? I have. I remember in Nepal, Pastor Andy Tulong talked about how he was in prison for the gospel and he was beaten on his feet particularly because he took his shoes off and they could beat him on his feet because when the doctor came to look at him, he'd look all around. He had no bruises any place because all his bruises were hidden underneath on his feet and in prison for the gospel. And I, I, I remember him telling that story and I was just like, in the presence of one who had been beaten for the cause of Christ. Encouraging to me, encouraging to my own soul. And those things happen today. In many nations where it's illegal to, to be Christians, we ought to expect the physical sufferings. And maybe for us, it's more the, the ridicule, getting back to the social front that we fight it on. But be ready on the physical front. Jesus even said this, John 15. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And did they persecute Jesus? They did. And did they beat Jesus? They did. And they put him to death. And and I think that one of the things that strikes me about the the death of Jesus is the most unjust death that ever took place on the earth. I mean, at least us or Ukrainians, they're all sinners, right? They, They deserve God's wrath against them. It's only through Christ and trust in him that they're ever released out of that. But they they deserve, right, because they've sinned. But Jesus never sinned once, ever. And he was hated by the world. And even God the Father turned his eyes away from them and abandoned him on the cross. Psalm 22, verse 1. Jesus said, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause, without any reason. They hated Jesus. But, but that injustice done to him, 
comes in some regards unjustly to us as well as we believe in Christ. He took our sins. He took our beatings. He, he took the, the wrath of God upon his body for us. And that's what we celebrate in the, the Lord's Supper. As, as uh, Ryan mentioned earlier, this, this is the season of Lent. And uh, lots of churches get into it in many different ways. And we simply said, you know, leading up to Easter, the six Sundays leading up to Easter, we've just said, you know what? We don't celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday, lest it become tiresome and this total ritual you do. But during Lent, we celebrate it every Sunday just to create in us this, this heightened expectation of just Easter and what it meant and Good Friday and leading up to that. But Jesus, right, saying, this is my body broken for you, do this remembrance of me. This cup is a new covenant umbrella, drink it in remembrance of me. And that's really what we celebrate, the Lord's Supper. So we're going to celebrate here in just a, a little bit after I pray, then they're going to uh, come up and lead us in a song. And uh, then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper for those of you who trusted in Jesus and realized that the wrath that you deserve fell on Christ instead. Body is broken for you. For us, we'll do that in just a moment. So let's let's pray. As we pray, even for your own, just really think about whether you battle for the gospel. We've been talking uh, for weeks about how Acts tells us to be my witnesses, and the more that we are witnesses for Jesus, like Paul was, the more we'll face the warfare on the demonic front and on the social front and on the uh, the physical front. The more bold we are, the more these things will come. And so if these things haven't come, perhaps in your life it's because you've not been a witness. I would encourage you in that. Maybe there have been opportunities you've kept your mouth shut. Just even examine your heart now. Whether your mouth ever opens to stand up for Jesus. To speak and proclaim His glories. Even as uh, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we should examine our lives. Are you walking in a manner worthy of the gospel? Ephesians 4, 1. Are you confessing your sins, even as we did today, of your lack and failure? You say to the Lord, I believe, O Lord, help my unbelief. God, I, I, I've sinned against you, and I'm sorry. Well, look to the cross. Look to the cross. It's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, that we can indeed look to the cross of Christ. And so, Father, I pray as we will celebrate the supper soon, I pray that we might do so remembering you and remembering how you poured out your blood for us upon the cross that we might be made right with you. God, may this be a time which we reflect upon our own lives and see our own sin and see it nailed there on the cross, gone and wiped away and completely forgiven through Jesus Christ. God, and may this bread and may this cup touch our lips and go down our throats in joy of, of the blessings that we receive simply by, by faith and trust in you. And that you may give us the courage and the heart and the passion and the willingness to fight on the front of the battle and the war for the gospel of Christ. Thank you that, as Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And that we will win with the gospel. And that your kingdom will rule over all. And that your name will be above every name. In that, oh God, we place our hope. Not that our victory comes today, 
that, but our victory will come someday in the future. And this bread and this cup are an expression of our hope for that day. May we sing and sing these songs, words into our hearts. And may we eat for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.